Lucas on Life. Good evening and a very warm welcome to this week's Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. It's been eight days now since the funeral of His Royal Highness Prince Philip last Saturday on a crisp sunny day with the military turning out in impeccable order the nation, the Commonwealth and surely the world said goodbye to Prince Philip. The image of Her Majesty the Queen, her masked face bowed in grief, sitting alone in that Windsor Chapel is one that should prompt us all, royalists or not, to pray for a grieving widow who has lost her lifelong partner. But all this talk of grief and the word that we like to try to avoid, the D word, death, should surely nudge us all to think about our own mortality. It's been said that the statistics on dying are fairly impressive. One out of every one person's die. But as Jesus followers, we serve the one for whom dying was not the end. And eternity with him is promise for those who are in Christ. And so tonight... I'd like us to reflect for a while on that truth, not to be morbid, but to celebrate the hope that we have. This week, it's Lucas on Eternity, here on Premier Christian Radio. As I said earlier, eight days ago, millions watched the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh, and surely the reminder was very clear. Death, rather obviously, is real. Personally, having been a minister now for over 40 years, I was reminded of my very first funeral, and the undertakers knew that this was my maiden trip into navigating the task of officiating a funeral. I knew that they knew by the way that they tried to stifle their grins and whispered behind cupped hands in each other's ears. Undertakers are not supposed to smile, even furtively, but they couldn't resist it. They knew that the young minister, me, that this was the first time. I'd never seen a corpse before, and I was scared to death. I'd spent a long, sleepless night, tossing and turning and dreaming brief dreams about coffins and corpses before waking up again, my forehead beaded with sweat. I was scared of my fear. Would I faint at the sight of the body? I knew that my very first funeral was going to feature an open-top coffin. That sounds like a convertible sports car. And so the body would not be hidden away, safe and sound, in its brass-handled container. No, this first funeral that I was taking was to include a very open casket, one containing one very dead person. And I was mortified. I knocked at the door of the house where the pre-funeral gathering was being held, half expecting the deceased to answer the door. Taking a big deep breath, I jumped into the hallway, alarming the mourners who obviously thought that the minister was either armed and dangerous or had been watching too many James Bond movies. The coffin had still not arrived, and so my over-anxious entrance was in vain. I smiled lamely and said something that I hoped sounded vaguely sensible. The funeral director smiled back. At last, his colleagues arrived with the dearly departed. I thought I was going to scream as they set the trestles up and placed the coffin upon them, right next to the sausage rolls and gherkins, which had been provided for the post-burial bash. Slowly, so slowly, they unscrewed the lid and I decided to take microscopic interest in one of the gherkins as they inched the lid open. Gherkin in hand, I turned slowly to view the corpse and immediately knew that everything was going to be all right. 
His face was a chalky, powdery white. His eyes clamped tight shut in the long sleep of death. His hands folded together across his chest, prayer-like, a fitting final posture for this belated man of God. The relatives came in, fussed around and picked up thin slices of pizza and told each other how very nice he looked, how very lifelike he looked. And then they asked me for a photograph with the departed. I initially assumed that they just wanted a snap of me as the officiating minister at the funeral, and so I swallowed that last piece of gherkin with which I'd become so well acquainted. But I was mistaken. They wanted me to be in a photograph together with the departed brother. I couldn't believe it at first. Surely not. I mean, how was such a photograph to be taken? Should I get down beside the coffin and nestle in closely, head to head, as if the deceased and I were out for a night on the town together? Should I put a friendly arm around the coffin head? And should I smile for the camera? After all, my fellow photographic model was, um, dead. They said that a smile would be fine, as the dearly departed had indeed gone elsewhere and was now with Jesus. So why not smile, they reasoned. I agreed. Put my arm around the coffin as if the deceased and I were posing for a post-football snapshot and did my best to look happy. I hadn't planned on getting that close to the body. Perhaps it was morbid fascination, but I studied the texture and lines of the face closely, the stillness. The utter absence of life was fascinating to behold. The flashbulb did its work, and minutes later, I was being shown a Polaroid snapshot of myself and a very cold, dead person. Polaroid snapshot. This shows you how long ago this was. I remarked that it was a pretty good photo, but inwardly wanted to say, he doesn't look well, does he? It didn't seem appropriate. It was time to go to the cemetery, so they screwed the coffin lid on again and we began our slow drive to the leafy park. But there, again, another unusual experience awaited me. This family was determined to bury their dead. I had expected to do the ashes-to-ashes ashes bit and then walk away and allow the gravediggers to do their work after the mourners had left. But this family had a tradition of acting as gravediggers themselves, the women sang beautiful spirituals, their lilting voices, a mixture of lament and celebration, as they sang about the sweet by and by. And as they harmonised together, the men took up shovels and spades and filled the grave with earth. Great clods of rain-soaked earth thudded onto the coffin lid, and within minutes the wooden casket had disappeared from view. Still they sang on until the grave was quite filled and the mound of earth rose above ground and the lilies had been arranged delicately. Then, and only then, did any mourner attempt to leave. Back at the wake there was laughter and tears and eating and drinking. In a quieter moment I wondered about the way these people treated death, the open coffin, the photograph which would be sent to relatives overseas and the insistence from the family that they literally buried their dead. Did they do this because they were unafraid to stare death in the face? Did it help their mourning to make sure that any sense of unreality was shredded by the brutality of deadness? Our culture so often disguises death. To speak of it is seen as morbid. We hide the undertaker's shop down back streets and use just about any turn of phrase as a cosmetic to cover up the harsh reality. A person is deceased, departed, gone on before, on the other side, anything but dead. 
My first funeral taught me far more than I had expected. I had bumped into a group of Christians who were able to stare down the last enemy, death itself. Their confidence was not based in some sentimental, it'll all be all right on the night view of heaven, but anchored in the sure hope that comes from the Jesus who has wrestled death and won the fight for all of us who will believe. You see, death is very dead. You're listening to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio, and we're talking about eternity and, yes, death. The ageing car was a rust bucket, apparently held together by fading bumper stickers. My boss is a Jewish carpenter, announced one. I pondered the thought that the saviour from Nazareth was currently at the right hand of the father, busily churning out coffee tables at knockdown prices. An even older sticker on the car encouraged fellow motorists to honk if you love Jesus, while another gently warned would-be honkers to be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. There was still another sticker on the back of the car that said, I've had a faith lift. Was this car driven by a Chinese plastic surgeon with a lisp? And then the most helpful sticker, in the event of the rapture, this car will be without a driver. Helpful advice this for those who believe in that particular interpretation of scripture. Those left behind after the second coming may be scratching their heads trying to work out why millions of people have suddenly disappeared from the planet, but at least they wouldn't be left wondering why that car was driverless. Hmm. A familiar stirring of irritation surfaced somewhere inside my head, wrinkling my brow and nudging me to mutter a superior comment about those pie-in-the-sky space cadet Christians as I urged my own stickerless car past the slogan-bound rustmobile. It was the same frustration that had sparked a few days earlier when I drove by a church building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If the southern states of America are the Bible Belt, then Tulsa is the belt buckle. Thousands of churches litter the streets in the sweltering city, and most of them have huge billboards outside. One had particularly frustrated me. The city had been through a heat wave and a large number of people had died of heat exhaustion. This church put up a sign saying, if you think it's hot here, then just wait. So much for good news, I murmured with measured superiority as I looked at that sign and then treated my fellow family members as to yet another sermonette denouncing Christians who are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. I'd quietly chuckled when I saw an eminently non-Christian sticker with the words, Jesus is coming, look busy. I admit it. I do get weary of Christians who seem to think that the next exciting event in God's diary is heaven. But then all that changed when I went to Redding, California and met Paul and Margaret, a couple who have heaven in their hearts. Their car, like mine, is stickerless. We were riding together in this cliche-free vehicle when I asked an innocent question, more for the sake of polite conversation, really. How many children do you have? I asked. Margaret hesitated, as if she were not sure of the number of her own offspring. There was a lengthy, somewhat awkward silence, and I was tempted to make a witty comment about moving on to an easier question, but something told me to just be quiet. Something was right. Well, Jeff, they said, we've got three children, but one of them is with Jesus. Our eldest daughter was murdered by her boyfriend when she was just 19. He beat her up and threw her from his truck and then ran over her. So yes, we have three children, 
two on earth and one who is with Jesus. I stammered and searched frantically for words that could form a response to such an awful tragedy, but Paul and Margaret neither needed nor demanded my little contribution. In the next hour or two, they allowed me to peer into the cavern of their pain. Paul sat clutching a coffee cup in one hand, a photograph of his beautiful firstborn girl in the other. They told me that you never, ever recover from such a trauma. They told me that you slowly learn to smile again. But most of all, with their laughter and tears and their sparkling, hope-filled eyes, they made me realise that part of them was already living in the not-yet-of-forever. They had been to hell and back and had tasted heaven in the journey. They were not ethereal or spacey or cliched, but they were living as citizens of a kingdom that will never end and looking forward to the reunion party. Little things don't bother them anymore. As church leaders, they aren't too concerned about bowing down to religious culture. Margaret, a minister's wife, had a nose ring just because she wanted to, and she was planning to get herself a tattoo as well. I just love to stir up those religious devils, she smiled. Not a smug grin of arrogance, but the settled joy of one who has looked at death itself in the face and found out that there's someone bigger who quit carpentry to become a king. And after I left them, I felt that in some ways... I'd been ushered into an audience with greatness, and I was deeply challenged. Has my Christianity become so focused in the here and now that I have lost sight of the wonderful forever that lies just beyond time's horizon? The old southern slaves had looked for a sweet chariot to swing low, coming for to carry them home. They had nothing much in the now and everything in the not yet. They were temporary paupers, groaning for their inheritance, they were going from here to eternity. Paul and Margaret don't have stickers on their car. They have deep, bloody wounds in their hearts. But one day, one day, they will dance again without a limp, arm in arm with their daughter, spinning and jumping with the Jesus who stands above death and hell. So perhaps we've heard it a thousand times, but let's stop once again and consider this. As a Christian, you're going to be with Christ always. That's forever. And that's good news. We're thinking about eternity and death. Jory was a bright, cheeky 12-year-old with an infectious giggle and a razor-sharp wit. He was a young man who decided that he liked life a lot, had decided to live as a follower and friend of Jesus, and now was seriously enjoying the journey. John and Sherry, his parents, were and are good friends of mine. I've often stayed in their home in Colorado Springs and found it to be a true haven of love and laughter. I remember speaking at a youth meeting in Jory's hometown. I was feeling rather ancient, and so, in a fairly pathetic attempt to just be a little bit trendy, I donned my orange Tommy Hilfiger fleece sweater. Jory ambled up to me as I walked in, took one look at my ambitiously fluorescent attire, winked and said, "'Nice try, Jeff.'" Jory loved music. I can remember one particular song, obviously about heaven, that seemed to be playing endlessly in his room. It said, there's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. There's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. That's my father's house. Jory and Justin, his elder brother, were staying at their grandparents' home in Wisconsin. Wanting to fetch some chewing gum and some sunglasses to shield his eyes from the late afternoon sun, 
Jory had hopped onto a four-wheel motorised bike and had headed back to the house, crossing a quiet road as he did so. Mission accomplished, he hopped on the bike again to head back across the field to rejoin his brother. But it was not to be. He probably never even saw the truck that carried him and the bike some yards up the road in that moment. His grandpa, hearing the sound of screeching tyres, rushed out to discover his beloved grandson obviously dying. The distraught truck driver stood by, his hands ringing with grief. And now, a couple of days later, Kay and I were at the most emotional breakfast gathering. John and Sherry, their eyes swollen red with too many hours of sobbing, were just three hours away from an occasion that no parent should ever have to attend, the funeral of their son. We had received a telephone call just hours earlier asking if we could fly out to be with John and Sherry and asking me to be one of the speakers at the funeral service. We sat through the long flight with increasing dread. What words could we possibly say to these dear friends of ours who were now at the very extremities of pain? How could we comfort them without resorting to cliches? Now, the four of us, together with two other close friends, joined at a table of tears to talk through the last-minute details of the service to try and help prepare the parents for this potential ordeal. We talked about songs and the order of things and who should speak when and where. And then, during a lull in the conversation, John leaned over to ask Kay, my wife, a question, an inquiry that sent a surge of panic racing through me. Kay, John said, has the Lord said anything to you about Jory's death? It seemed to me like a question far too risky to answer. To say that God had said something only to be mistaken could cause enormous wounding at such a painful, sensitive moment. The danger of sounding cliched was looming. I looked down at my coffee and hoped that Kay would calmly and gently affirm that no, she had not heard from God and that yes, she knew that God would be faithful and ultimately speak into this valley of tears. Except she didn't answer in the negative. Yes, John, she said. I do believe that God spoke to me this morning. I scrutinised the coffee even more closely. It was very dark. I held my breath and tried to nudge Kay under the table to cause her to hesitate. Kay said, I feel that God impressed me to tell you that Jory really is dancing with the angels right now. The black sheen of the coffee reflected my stare. Dancing with the angels now. Did this not sound a little trite? Apparently not. Dabbing his eyes with a tissue, John calmly responded, Kay, I know that you don't know this, but Jory loved to dance. It was what he liked doing best. He couldn't keep still when there was music playing. But there's something more significant. Yesterday, Sherry and I went to the funeral home to say our goodbyes to Jory. When the time came for us to leave, I looked at the face of my son for one last time, leaned over the coffin, kissed his cheek, and my parting, final words to him as a father were, Dance, Jory, dance. The rest of our breakfast together was a buffet of laughter and weeping, of sensing that God had spoken and would yet speak, and yet sensing the swirling fogs of mystery and the ever-looming question why that so frequently comes calling when we find ourselves in the season of tragedy. You see, there are so many things that I just can't figure out about God, about life, about the nature of suffering. But I know this. There is a bright, laughing-eyed young man called Jory who is partying right now in the father's house, eating at a big, big table. 
and who knows, maybe kicking a football around as well. Perhaps the issue that we've been talking about this evening impacts you deeply. You can call the Premier Helpline on 0300 111 That's 0300 111 Let me be clear as I sign off. I'm not keen on the idea of dying. But let's remember, our hope in Christ points us not just to life forever, but life forever with him. And that truth in music, in prayer, in the reading of scripture was affirmed and celebrated in the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. Some would have liked to have a sermon, but in a funeral that Prince Philip crafted himself, the Christian message was beamed around the world, the good news, the gospel. And as I said, that's certainly news that's worth sharing. So this week, let's pass it on in life and word. See you next time. Lucas on Life.